Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. A gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have revealed yourself through Scripture and creation and that we see your truths uh, in black and white before us. Lord, we pray that we would be ones who seek to be able to open and study your word uh, as those who did in Thessalonica. um, Lord, that we would do so with eagerness, that we would examine the scriptures and do so daily to be able to seek to, to, to know what we learn of is true. Lord, we pray that we would base not our uh, opinion, uh, not our thoughts would not be based on our opinions or our general consensus, but our foundation would be that we would believe everything that comes from your mouth, that we would hold fast to your word and the promises that lie therein. Be with us this very evening through the Spirit as we seek to be able to understand your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Obadiah, verses 1 to 14. It is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly destroyed, despised. Your pride of your heart has deceived you, and you live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling. You say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest be set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, the understanding of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On that day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, the foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to be cut off 
his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. In many things, numbers does not necessarily mean there's an advantage. Just because you have more people playing does not mean that you are going to win. It doesn't mean everything in sports or games. If you ever played a game, maybe it's uh, in uh, school, you remember these days when you would pick sides and eventually, you know, you would divide the people up evenly, but the game or the match was definitely not even. You have the person who is 10 or 12 inches taller than everyone else, and they have an advantage when it comes to playing basketball. It doesn't matter what side they are on, that side will always win. The other players might play their small part, but ultimately it comes down to that one person who has the ability or the, uh, the advantage that no one else does. And here in this passage, we see that same thing. That it seems that one who was large and grand will be brought down to the ground. As we see in the book of Obadiah, it's a vision concerning Edom. This pronouncement that has been made by the Lord of those who have gone against his people. This judgment has been pronounced. What will happen to Obadiah in verses 5 to 9. But the reason why this judgment has been pronounced is found in verses 10 to 14. This is the reason why this judgment is coming upon them. You see so very clearly in verse 10 with the beginning. Because of the violence done to your brother. There is the reason this is why they are facing this judgment is because of all these things that have done. Here's a list of all the things that Edom, Esau, has done to his brother Jacob. That we have mentioned that this is this tension which has come from the very first of these two siblings from the womb. A story with a rich history of uh, tension between conflict numbers as as the people of Israel, the people of God are seeking to be able to leave and they're they're walking through, they're trying to flee Egypt. And they ask those in Edom to be able to walk through their land. They say in Numbers verse twenty chapter twenty verse seventeen, please let us pass through your land. We'll not pass through field or vineyard or drink or water from well. We'll go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. They seek to be able to walk through. We're, we're not going to be a nuisance. We're just going to walk through. All we need is the gravel, the, the road, the path to be able to walk through. This is all we need. Well, Edom responds with conflict. They don't just say no. They come out to be able to attack them. Now, a large part of this question over when Obadiah was written comes down to what point are they specifically trying to attack? What is the announcement of these judgments? And there's two main thoughts, either early or late. Early is the ninth century, 
B.C. and late as the 6th. The first of the ninth century speaks about 853 to, to 841, which we find out about in 2 Kings chapter 8. What we find out there is that in verses 20 to 22, in, the, in his days Edom revolted to the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zyar with all his chariots and rose by night, and he as his chariot commander struck the Edomites who had, been, uh, who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted the rule of Judah to this day. And Libna revolted at the same time. We see, read about this again in, in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 21. That's what we see in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 21. It expands it a little bit more in verses 16 to 17. And the Lord stirred up against Jehoram, the anger of the Philistines and the Arabians, who were near the Ethiopians. And they came up against Judah and invaded it. And they carried away all the possessions and they found that belonged to the king's house, and also his sons and his wives, so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. So here they say that this is the example of when Edom went in to Israel and they plundered and they pillaged as other nations come and be able to attack. Edom seeks not to be able to attack Israel, but what they seek to be able to do is kick them while they're down. Here they are, they've been attacked and pillaged. The king's family has been wiped out except one son. And here Edom comes in to be able to attack and take advantage of this time. You see that throughout what we've just read. On the day you stood aloof, on the day the strangers carried off his wealth, the foreigners entered his gates and cast lots of Jerusalem, you were like one of them. And if you placed Obadiah in this period where it's seeking to be able to pronounce judgment of this action, then this would be very early. The significance would actually make Obadiah a very significant book, although often most overlooked in maybe all of the Bible. This would actually place Obadiah as been one of the earliest prophetic books written. And that would have significant impact if you consider the impact of how Obadiah uses the phrase, that day of the Lord. Then what you would see is that day flows from here and and people start using that terminology. That Obadiah would have one of the origin stories of that terminology. Now, prophets had existed before then, Samuel, Nathan, Gad, Elijah, Elisha. Their accounts are recorded earlier, but often in a different format. Not merely just a prophetic book, but often in a historical narrative tied in with the story of Israel. 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. Now, many scholars actually just say this is not possible. I don't, obvious, I don't actually think many scholars give this point of view enough to be able to think about. Mainly they look at Jeremiah chapter 49. And if you look at the overlap between Jeremiah chapter 49 and Obadiah, there is much similarities. And they say, well, Jeremiah, we know the timeline of this writing, so therefore Obadiah needs to be around that writing. Now, however, I do think it is possible that Obadiah wrote this long before Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah chapter 49. And Jeremiah might have been referring to and referencing Obadiah uh, when he wrote 49. 
that often what we think of is the major prophets and the minor prophets. We put the major prophets in a category saying these are the good prophets, these are the great prophets, the grand prophets, and here are the smaller ones. They haven't quite made it yet to the big leagues. That's not how we divide them. We divide them because they're longer or shorter. It's not that they have a different standing. They're all prophets. They all carry the same authority because they all speak the word of God. So if Obadiah was written earlier, there is no reason why Jeremiah would not refer to Obadiah as a passage and understand it as Scripture. Now this is generally the overlooked view that it's early dating. Now to be honest, I didn't give it much thought, but I did find a couple of scholars that accurately reflected it, and I think did a very good job to actually make me consider this more. Now I am more convinced that it is uh, a later dating, dating in the 6th century, but I still think that there is a valid point of view from the ninth perspective. The second is the 6th century. And the, the speaking of is, is Babylon. The Babylon comes in. Babylon is this new superpower. They come in and destroy Jerusalem in about 587 B.C. They come in. They wipe out the city. They, they come to re- remove everyone out of Babylon. This is where uh, Daniel is when he's, he's sent in the period of Babylon. And, and we fi- read about this in Psalm 31, uh, 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, and we remembered Zion. And it says in verse 7, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it to bear, lay it to bear, down to its foundations. Here the Babylonians come in, they come and take all they do, but Edom celebrates, they rejoice as they see this happen. Again, what we see repeated in verses 10 to 14. So you have either 9th century or 6th century, there's different perspectives but I think what the beautiful thing about it is we don't know what period it's written to. What exactly they're talking about. And I think that helps make the book more timeless in a way. This book speaks to those in the 9th century and the 6th century. But also to those who are descendants of Abraham living by faith as his children. And what you have is then opposite is those who are opposing God's people like the Edomites. What you see throughout the, the book and the point of Obadiah is that it's connected to the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That here, the Edomites are connected to this covenant. Here you have the brother Jacob repeated several times throughout this passage. That here... Your brother Jacob, you will be cut off forever. This term cut off is exactly the term which is used to be able to make a covenant. What you would do is you would cut an animal in half and you'd walk between the creatures and you would be saying, I will fulfill my side of the promise if you fulfill your side of the promise. And if you don't fulfill your side of the promise, this is what's going to happen to you. This animal is representation of those who break the promise. They cut the promise. 
And here now Edom is removed. He's cut off. God has given them this land, this Mount uh, Seir, to be able to be a blessing. And he says, don't fight against your brother, for I have given it to you. So we see these charges which are brought against the Edomites, the enemies of God's people. And he tells them about how they still live as strangers carried away their things out of the gates. They cast lots for Jerusalem. They gloated, they rejoiced, they boasted. They looted, they stood there at the crossroads, handed over all the survivors. You see them now just taking advantage, swooping in of these people who have taken everything from their hands. And now they swoop in and they're taking advantage while Israel is down. They're making the most of this terrible day. As Israel has been attacked, Edom is seeking ways to be able to make money, have an advantage from their misfortune. Again, gloating, rejoicing, looting. They repeat the exact same conflict that we see in the first chapters of the Bible. This brotherly conflict. Cain murdering Abel. And God comes in on that day and he asks Cain, What happened? Where's your brother Abel? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? He doesn't, he doesn't even matter if he's brother's keeper, he's his brother's murderer. And this is exactly what Edom has done to his brother Jacob. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. This word violence speaks of horrendous crimes and acts of rape and pillaging. The word, you might have even heard it before, Hamas. This is a word that, that uh, Edom has done to his brother Jacob. Now again, it doesn't take us long to be able to think and consider the connections to the gospel. Casting lots in Jerusalem, rejoicing in the day of calamity. But even further, you go, Herod the Great who's the Herod which sought to be able to wipe out all the children of about the age of two. His mother was a Jew, but his father was an Edomian, which you can kind of see the Greek version of an Edomite. What did he do? He tried to Hamas, violence to Christ, And even later on, his son is the one who ridiculed, who mocked Christ in this day where he is beaten, he is down. Luke 23 explains that Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and they mocked him. Then arraying him with splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. But as much as, as the guilt is upon Edom for attacking his brother... What you also see here is is something far more important. An important aspect in the whole book of Obadiah. That is, we find in a simple few words in verse 13. That here it says, do not enter the gate of my people. 
It's not merely that Jacob is your brother. More importantly, Jacob is my son. Jacob is my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. This covenant which you have broken is a covenant which I am going to keep. They are God's people. God is the one who is going to step in to defend and fight for his people. This is a promise that Abraham had right at the very beginning. That I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I am not going to stand by and watch something happen to my children right before my eyes. I'm going to be the first person who stands between danger and my wife. I'm going to be the first person that stands between danger and my children. And this is exactly what God does. When people rise up and they mock and they gloat and they they attack his people, he starts to step in. The God is the one who will protect his people. That they are protected by God. Now harm might come to them. But God is just in how he deals with them. You see this very clearly in Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Here Saul is an enemy of God, seeking to be able to attack the people of God. Doing violence against his brother, you might say. And he asked letters of the synagogues at Damascus so that it may be found any belonging to the way men or women. He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Here, Jesus is is dead. He he, he went into the grave. He ascended from the grave. He went into heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And when he appears to Saul, he does not say, why are you attacking my people? He does not say, why are you attacking these disciples? He says, why are you attacking and persecuting me? It is personal. You are persecuting me. You are the one who are, you are persecuting. The body of Christ is here. And Christ says that you are persecuting me. And here we find great comfort to be found throughout all the Bible. As the, as the people of God are leaving and fleeing Egypt, they're worried and concerned about what will happen to them. And Moses turns to them and says, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Here, death is at their door, they're worried, they're concerned, and and God says, You are my people. I am the one who is going to protect you. What do you have to do? Be silent. A difficult command for some of us. Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. 
What shall we say of these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, the psalmist writes in Psalm 118, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God is with us as more than just he is by our side as we go through the troubled waters. God is with us means that he is for us because we are his. We are his people. Or Psalm 56. You have kept count of my tossing, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose words I praise in the Lord, whose word I praise in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? That here, the book of Obadiah is about God fighting for his people, God sending a prophet to be able to warn the people of Edom, what they have done and how he is now standing in. That day of judgment is cupping. Or as the author of Hebrews puts it, that this theology teaches us that we are able to be content in where we are. He writes in Hebrews chapter 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We see that the the people who are against God and his people are are gloating, boasting, rejoicing as as those who have been kicked and, and thrown down to the ground. But what we see there is even if you continue to read in verse 15, that here the day of the Lord is near to all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. That here we see the promise of God is God will take it into his own hands. Those who come and attack his people, God will fight for them. We need not be afraid. We see this not only in the 9th century or 6th century, whenever Obadiah is dated, but throughout all the Bible that God stands for his people. He defends his people. Actually, this is a sign of rejoicing of those who have been persecuted in Revelation chapter 6. In the fifth seal, John explains that he sees under the altar of souls those who have been slain for the word of God and witness they have borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they will be each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Here they are, they've been murdered for and persecuted by those around them because of their faith, because of the word of God, because of the witness they have borne. And, and they cry out to Lord and they, they even praise is on their lips, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, worship is, and adoration is before them as they seek to be able to say, you are the one who is able to protect us and def- defend us. You are the one who is going to judge and avenge our blood. 
And we see this throughout church history and even prevalent today. Persecution arises. We, we saw this as we thought about Exodus chapter 1 this morning. John Calvin puts it this way. All whom the Lord has chosen and honored with admission into the society of his saints ought to prepare themselves for hard, laborious, and unquiet life, replete with numerous and various calamities. It is the will of their heavenly Father to exercise them in this manner, so that he may have a certain proof of those who belong to him. Having begun with Christ, his first begotten Son, he pursues this method towards his children. Or as Charles Simeon puts it, persecution for righteousness' sake is what every child of God must expect. And when faith is in lively exercise, it will be sustained without murmuring. But when faith languishes, the trials which believers are called to endure will appear almost insupportable. Glorious promise that we never take hold to. Those who live a godly life will suffer persecution. But it's persecution which God says that I will fight and I will defend. You only need to be silent. Stand firm. If God is for us, who can be against us? We see this in the book of Obadiah as, as Obadiah writes this message of warning to the nation of Edom. That now God steps into the ring for his people. Or as Martin Luther wrote in the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. The glorious truth that we see is God always wins. The gates of hell will be knocking to try and beat down what Christ has won and caught The devil will be trying to snatch those in which God has given to his son, Jesus Christ. But the glorious promise is that Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus promises the the sheep which are his will not be snatched from him. Because God says, these are my people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. A gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise for the many promises which we find within your word, particularly even in this small book of Obadiah. Lord, that you are the one who steps in and fights for your people. That you are the one who admonishes and administers justice and vengeance to those who rightly deserve it. We thank you, Lord, that you look upon us as through Jesus Christ, the one who has undergone this punishment and judgment for ourselves that we have been bought with a price and belong not to ourselves, but belong body and soul to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we are his and he is mine. Let us rest in this glorious promise as we go through dark and trying times, as we are persecuted for living a godly life, seeking to follow in the footsteps of of our founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Be with us.
as we stand firm, as we rejoice even in the times which are hard. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.